Whoops, cheers and spilt drinks. The capsule party was well underway. The capsule chapter house was located just a short walk from the campus of Filton University. Like most nights at the chapter house, things were heating up. Chapter leader Buddy Owen was pledging some new recruits. Most of them were sons of bankers, property developers and politicians. They all had that in common. Powerful parents. Famous names in the city like the financial giants Beckenridge and the Weirs of Weir Hotel were just some of the elite who had pledged Capasol. There were, of course, the Owen family who had founded the fraternity in the first place as a means of connection between the shady city and the great states where they came from. A former pledge described the grueling and sometimes ridiculous rituals. The bros were anarchic, using their powerful names to get away with all kinds of debauchery. It was a system of too much power and too little responsibility that suited young men like Buddy Well. If you were a bro, you would never fail an exam at university. Job interviews, money and satisfying every whim. None of it would be a problem for the boys of Capasol because they protected one another. The former member I spoke to wouldn't give any details and he was visibly nervous when he mentioned it, but pledging Capasol was never easy, and when it fell into the hands of Buddy it became downright ridiculous. His ancestor, Henry Hen Owen, brought the fraternity together originally and it had been in the hands of the Owen family since. No one could argue Buddy's place in the chain of command. It was the kind of establishment that Tabitha sought to challenge. She wasn't exactly the person to advocate for what was right, but it did shed light on a bigger problem. Those in power had become so comfortable in their place over the generations it left little room for the average person. Capasol bros didn't care. They had always gotten along without consequences. Why should they worry then? Really they just wanted to smash beers and pound pussy. Or was it smash pussy and pound beers? Some days it was just difficult to tell. In homage to that principle, Buddy had some of his pledges at heel. A group of boys, probably encouraged by their parents to endure the torture of pledging. What began as games we all played as students, drinking games, quizzes, quickly became absurd. If they managed to endure the nonsense, an easy life with every possible advantage was theirs to have, and they would have the eternal support of their fraternity. That, and they could pound pussy and smash beers all they wished. It was a sweet life, bro. Listen up, pledges. Y'all think you got what it takes to pledge Capaso? Yes, master, the pledges replied in synchrony. One named Brady was particularly zealous. But he was dressed in a summer dress holding two black sex toys in his hands. On his right stood Cooper. He was Buddy's right-hand man in the chapter house. By that, it just meant he always stood on the right. He too was from the Great States. And on his left, wearing a crash helmet from an earlier drunken game and a bra, because titties need support bra, was Chad. Chad leapt forward. Yeah, he cried out. We're going to tickle your balls. He waved his arms at his genitals. Then you're going to suck our balls. Buddy's cocaine fuel gaze narrowed on his brother. Dude, Buddy asked, turning to Cooper. Wasn't the ball tickler tomorrow? Cooper shrugged. Chad would know best. He was head ball tickler of the Colford chapter. Buddy turned back to his pledges. Right, listen up, y'all. We're going undercover at a feminist rally. Some hippie dyke is trying to get us all shut down. No cop must be making her mad, so y'all gonna put on your mama's best Sunday dress and we're all gonna show her what she's missing. He waved the dildos. Anyone comes at us, we're gonna cock smack the shit out the lot of them. Y'all hear me? His voice beaming like that of a boxing announcer. The pledges cheered. Bud, cried a female voice over the top of them. A cheerleader named Cheryl waved a phone at him. Phone call. Buddy rolled his eyes and sniffed. I'm busy. It's the cappy, she said. The title of respect given to Buddy's father, Charles Chicoan. 
caused a wave of hush to wash over the room. Take care of the pledges, he instructed his bros. Brady seemed to have drawn a smile from him. <laughs> Put it away, Brady, it's not time yet. Yeah, he answered, tucking one of the sex toys under his arm. Please hold for Mr. Owen, his father's secretary announced, but he pursed his lips. The soft voice was replaced quickly by the harsher tones of his father. Charles Chick Owen was head of the Owen family at this time, and he was respectfully titled the Cappy. I need you home early tomorrow, said Chick without waiting for instructions. Why? Buddy asked. Be here at nine, Chick ordered. It'd be nice to have the family together. Judge Dial will be visiting, and I'd like for us to show a united front. Bro, Buddy Wayne, that sounds boring as shit. Buddy, this time the cabbie addressed him sternly. Be here at nine, and do not call me bro. One of the brothers looked over and laughed as one of the pledges were being carried away. Whatever pledge Brother Brady had done, it had earned him being hoisted onto shoulders. The doorbell rang again. It was open to a group of prostitutes, or maybe they were girls from the university. It was difficult to tell. They all dressed like whores as far as Buddy was concerned. Either way, it would provide the night's entertainment, and an extra incentive for the pledges still standing. Chick didn't rule his head of the own family through being naive, though. He had been Capiso himself. Sure, he was the eldest and afforded authority on that account, but compared to his brothers, Jerry and Ronnie, he commanded respect. He knew his son well enough to be able to cipher through his nonsense. He could also hear the frat boy cheering in the background. Be here at nine tomorrow, not a minute later. You and I are going to talk. If you're not here on time, I will send someone to fetch you proper. Damn, daddy, Buddy continued. I got pledges and shit to take care of. Cuss me again, boy, and the pledges will be the least of your concerns. Yes, sir. This time, Buddy wondered how satisfying it would be to cop bash the old man. The cappy rang off. Buddy turned to his party. The girls were already being fed alcohol at an alarming rate. Buddy waved the dildos. Party time, baby! Who wants cog smashed? A private estate in the north in the area of Abbotsford, adjacent to Harvester Farm, was where the own ranch lay. It had been their first purchase when the family came over from the great estates. Since then, they had built golf courses all over the area as well as snatching up other land for use later. Dr. Winslow, who owned Harvester Farm since the old harvester himself fell ill, was still standing strong against the Owens' buyout of the area. He was one of the few to do so. It was used as a personal retreat for Chick when he was in the city, which was becoming more and more often. Charles Chick Owen was fair-haired and long-faced. His once blonde hair was lighter in tone than his dark eyebrows. The warm weather was continuing, so he wore a cotton shirt underneath his well-tailored low-end-made pinstripe suit. As expected, it was not ten past the hour of nine, and Buddy was late. Judge Doyle closed the door and a rabble of voices outside. Good morning, Charles, Karen greeted first. I hear there's good news on a knock-knock front, he said. It's been a real trial for too long. Tabitha's trial will be pushed through as quickly as my office can. We want it done cleanly and we want it done now, said Karen to the cappy. It gives my heart some mighty fine relief to hear that, he grinned. The sooner that girl is put out of her misery, the better. The team Hicks gathered also managed to bring in the pen triplets, added the judge with pride. I do not care for those hammer-slamming weirdos. I never have. The daddy and I have had issues for many years. The troublesome girl is the one that concerns me the most. Doyle informed him. We've already taken steps to put the knock-knock under seizure. The cappy grinned. Music to my ears, ma'am, he said. I've had Ronnie breathing down my neck about it. He looked over the judge's shoulder. Speaking of the do-good and son of bitch. Ronald Ronnie Owen, the cappy's younger brother, joined them. 
accompanied by Karen's cousin Mickey Doyle and her son Cameron. Cameron was a strong hulk of a young man, just a few years Buddy's junior. Shy, retiring. Chick surmised that couldn't be helped, having such a wolf of a mother to contend with. Cameron was an intimidating size, but it would be hard to find anyone of a gentle spirit. Good afternoon, Mr. Owen, Cameron nodded respectfully. Ronnie was taller than Chick, but a few years younger. He had the same jutting Owen chin, but seemed more pleasant of face. No time wasting with the campaign, and then Mick teased the cappy. The hot seat is open, it waits for no one, Mickey replied cheerily enough. The previous mayor, Feltz, was still missing. The lawmakers were all but certain that Tabitha's hand was in it, but she was refusing to cooperate. Until such times as he could be retrieved from wherever he was, the hot seat, which referred to the mayor's office, had to be taken control of. It was located in a building in Maine called City Face because of the large clock face at the front. If anyone had the bite to hold the hot seat, it was Mickey Doyle. No stranger to politics, he was as merciless as his cousin when it came to his pursuits, but unlike the cold hand of justice, he was more personable. In a lot of ways, that was more dangerous in taking control of a city. Are you okay there, Cam? Mickey clapped his cousin's son on his shoulder. Cameron looked up from his game with a smile. You're being ignorant, Cameron, his mother barked. Cameron's eyes dropped to his feet rather than back onto his game. Sorry, Mum, he said simply. We were just talking about the hard work you're doing keeping our city clean, Chick was saying to his brother. Ronnie was a seasoned criminal lawyer. I do my best, Ronnie agreed modestly. All heart and all brains this one, Chick laughed, putting his arm round Ronnie's broad shoulder. He turned towards the clock. Speaking of no brains, he addressed one of the staff. I'll call Buddy and tell him to get his ass out here on the double. Pardon my cousin, ma'am. The cap apologized to Cam. We should have a drink to celebrate a job well done, he said. Cam politely declined. I'd rather not. Chick looked to Cameron. He won't either. Cameron's pocket began to bleep. He smiled as he began to contend himself with an online game he had become engrossed in. He and username Reg3 had started to become quite a team, but Reg3 hadn't been online lately. Still, he played on alone. The house was cold. Cameron hadn't wanted to adjust the thermostat after what happened the last time. Things needed shaking up at Coldford General. The doctors there didn't seem to know what they were doing. There was going to be a pretty heavy scar, the young attendant physician had said. He could look into skin grafting. He was at least ten years Cam Doyle's junior. He was barely a day out of Filton Medical School. A real doctor wouldn't have to ask. A real doctor would have known she was going to wear her scars with pride. She would show the world what they tried to do to her, and they would quiver because she still stands. She rubbed the scar across her neck. It was like a noose that her skin had burned through. They told her that she could wear a patch over her eye, but she refused. She would never hide, and cowering behind an eye patch was hiding as far as she was concerned. When they looked on the eyes, they would see the damage that had been inflicted. They would see how much they had tried to hurt her, and a shiver would crack down their spine because she still stands. She looked deeper into the mirror. She lifted her chin. They would appear in her courtroom, one by one and they would answer for their crimes. She would deal them her judgment. They would plead to her mercy. They would cry guilty, and as her hammer fell, they would beg forgiveness because, even after they tried to kill her, she still stands. The front door slammed. An angry breath escaped to her nostrils. The noise of Cameron's return home was like pots being clattered in her ears. Mum, Cameron called. 
When he saw a car in the driveway of their Lord Kingsgate home, he deduced she was home from the hospital. How clever he was. He sought her out. He came calling out to her. Why wouldn't he shut up? She didn't answer him, but still he cried out, Mom! Mom! It was a stupid title. There were so many in the world that went by that same title. It was a stupid title and ridiculously common. He found her in the bathroom, observing herself. I'm glad you're home, he said. She could see him smiling over her shoulder in the reflection. She could smell sweat on him. The icy tone was not new to his mother, but given the attack she had been subjected to, he thought she would have been pleased to have her son by her side. Are you all right? He was hesitant to ask. She hadn't said anything about the hospital or what the doctors had said. Was it his fault? Should he have asked sooner? He had been playing football that afternoon, part of training for Kingsgate Albion. Why hadn't he showered when he came off the pitch? Why did he think it was okay to come home bloodied and muddy, leaving footprints all over a clean floor? Karen could feel her temples start to ache. She reached up and started to massage them with her forefingers. Cameron saw the warning signs. You should have known better. Cameron, she said, her voice as cold as ice but calm. Cameron's head dropped. He averted his gaze to the floor immediately. That's when he saw it. Flakes of mud had dislodged from his sneakers. Sorry, Mum, he said softly. Sorry, Mum, he screamed as her temper unleashed. She grabbed him by the ear, causing him to double over. She hit him with an astonishing force across his head. As large as he was, he would never hit her back. What kind of person would that make him if he could hit his own mother? He should have been paying more attention. Whack! Whack! She hit him again. The pain stung against his cheek. Please, Mum, he sobbed. Whack! Whack! His shrieks of pain just made her angrier. Her stockings laddered as he dug his nails into her legs. He was beaten heavily. His nose burst and his face crashed against the tiled floor, the muddy prints marking his cheek. He started to feel a little dizzy. Something was not right, but he dared not complain. She threw him back. Her full lips were puckered slightly. She kept hitting him until Cameron's body fell limp. The blood trickling from his skull mixed with the mud and sweat. His shirt stained. Are you all right? She barked the question. Still angry. She hovered over him with her hands behind her back. Get up. He didn't want to have her to ask twice. He stood as steady as his legs could hold him. Pain was firing through his skull as the shock of the assault wore off and he could feel the full brunt. She wiped the tear from his eye. She clutched his face with cold, dry hands and pulled it closer to her. She kissed his forehead. She spoke to her psychiatrist. Dr. Christie could tell she was regretful. Normally with a psyche of steel, she gathered herself, she fulfilled her medical obligations. All was well. Still she stood. Cameron had been so worried about her. When the driver who collected him from training told her that his mother had been caught in an explosion, he ran to the door to see her without even saying please or thank you. It had been the third attack on her. They tried cutting her throat, but still she stands. They cut the brakes of her car and watched it plunge into the lake. She did not drown. Still she stands. They tried to catch her in an explosion, and yet, still she stands. She was the unkillable Judge Doyle, and justice is immortal.